But what do you think? What do you think? Have you ever been asked, what do you think? I'm sure you have many times. Did the Lord ever use that question as he lived and worked among men in his earthly ministry? Indeed, he did. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 11, Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. The next statement is a question. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Emphasis here is seen on one. Not the will of heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If you turn to Luke chapter 15, you see a further emphasis on one. As the accusation that was leveled against the Lord by the Pharisees and scribes prompted three beautiful and poignant parables, emphasizing the value of one precious soul. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boy, or better known as the prodigal son. We concentrate on the parable the Lord gave concerning the lost sheep, verse 4, beginning of Luke 15. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, He calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Again, the emphasis on one precious soul, but also the emphasis on seeking that soul, that lost sheep, and bringing that lost sheep back into the fold. How extensive should the effort be? What about the process? Should we stop short of everything that God has demanded of us in his word to accomplish the goal of hopefully bringing back that lost sheep? Listen again to Luke 15 Four, leaves the ninety-nine in the wilderness and goes after the one which is lost, listen to this phrase, until he finds it, until he finds it. In other words, he is persistent, the shepherd is. He is persistent in his efforts to find that lost sheep. Oh yes, I know he still has ninety-nine there in the fold. And his attitude could very well be, well, I still have 99, and what really is the loss of 
of one. How important is the one? And after all, it's his own fault because he has wandered away. He deserves what he gets. That could be the attitude of the shepherd, but it is not. No, he goes and seeks that one until he finds it. What is depicted here? What is depicted here is not about sheep. It's about souls. It is about the importance of reclaiming those souls that have wandered from the fold, as have tragically some here at White Oak. And that's why it is absolutely incumbent upon us, as we study this morning and in a brief series of lessons on the lost sheep, to understand and fully appreciate and support and participate in every effort to reclaim those wandering souls, those wandering sheep. Because we are dealing in this context with those who have once obeyed the gospel, once known and obeyed the truth. Obviously, it is incumbent upon us to seek and to save all the lost, that is, those who've never heard and obeyed the gospel of Christ. But our emphasis here is upon those who have known and obeyed the truth. And the urgency that should characterize every member of the family of God in reclaiming those souls, in going after those souls until we find them, until every effort has been exhausted scripturally to bring them home. The urgency and the sobering urgency of that task is seen in a very familiar text, Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Where Peter writes, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. That should sober the thinking of every child of God as he or she thinks about those precious souls that have turned their back upon the holy commandment once delivered and have gone back into the world who are unfaithful to the Lord and the thought that the latter end for them will be worse than the beginning, that it would have been better for them never to have known the truth initially than having known it to turn their back upon it. In other words, the punishment will be far more severe. Oh yes, we understand, I hope we do, that those who've never heard the gospel are still lost in sin and they will be punished eternally unless they come out of that sin and come to the Lord. But the most severe Punishment awaits those who have once known the joy and peace of becoming children of God and then for whatever reason have turned their back upon the gospel of Christ and have left the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our emphasis in this lesson this morning is preparing ourselves to seek those who have gone astray. How should we be prepared? What should characterize those of us 
who should be involved in the process of bringing these lost sheep home. And when I say those of us who should be involved, I mean every child of God who is a child of God, a faithful child of God, here at White Oak. First of all, we have to be converted. And someone might say, well, that goes without saying. We have to be converted. Obviously, we're not going to be effective in bringing lost, wayward sheep back to the fold if we ourselves are among the lost. If we're among the wayward, what impact can we have? Yes, we need to be converted in the sense that we all need to be Christians. We all need to be examining ourselves, trying ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. But that conversion must include, must include the realization of the urgency that we are all to have for reclaiming lost, wayward souls as well as seeking initially those who've never obeyed the gospel of Christ. In other words, our evangelistic zeal and our determination to bring home wayward sheep must be as fervent as possible. And we must understand and appreciate that being converted is being converted in the fullest and complete, most complete sense of the word. And that is converted to do those things which at times are certainly far from pleasant, but absolutely essential, and to be supportive of every effort that is made. But we also need to be convinced that these lost sheep are just that, lost. You know, we live in a world where, religiously speaking, the most dominant doctrine that pervades the denominational world is the doctrine, one of the most doc, uh, dominant is per, once saved, always saved. In other words, these sheep about whom we are speaking, according to many, if not most, in the denominational world today, if they were truly once saved and they have left the fold, we have absolutely no responsibility toward them at all, not ultimately, because if we're consistent with the belief that once you're saved, you're always saved, why should you trouble yourself that much with going after them because they're going to be saved anyway? Well, obviously, that doctrine is a false doctrine. And that is abundantly borne out by literally hundreds of passages in Scripture that tell us that once a person is saved, he or she is not always saved, but that we must remain faithful to the Lord even unto death after we are converted to Christ. But we have to be convinced, converted and completely convinced that men are lost. And the sobering consequence of that lost condition. And we must also be concerned enough to go. We must be concerned enough about those who have left the fold to seek them and not leave that responsibility to the elders or to the deacons or to the preachers, but that every individual must be supportive and actively involved to the fullest extent of our ability in doing whatever we can to wield whatever influence we can to bring home that lost and straying sheep. You remember Galatians 6, 1 and 2? The passage from the pen of the Apostle Paul reminds us how deceitful sin is, first of all, 
and that it can sneak up on an individual and overtake that individual before he knows he's been overtaken. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, that expression indicates that sin is deceitful and subtle and it can have you in its grasp before you know you have been grasped. That many people do not determine on one Sunday morning, for example, before they leave this building, I will not be back tonight. Furthermore, I won't be back any night or day. I'm leaving. That generally does not happen. What generally happens is they don't come back tonight and perhaps not Wednesday night and that builds until ultimately they're not here at all. In other words, it's a more gradual process. Sin, sin can deceive and sin can cause us to misarrange, if you will, our priorities to the extent that we can feel perfectly comfortable by neglecting our duty to the Lord until ultimately it becomes more comfortable to be, to be more neglectful and more neglectful until we have apostatized completely. Satan, Satan, yes, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but he is also as subtle and as deceptive as he can be. But in Galatians 6, 1, reading further, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, there's the admonition, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now, I've asked this question before. Whom does Paul say should be involved in trying to restore the wayward? He says, you who are spiritual. That includes those who are spiritual, doesn't it? Well, that'd be the elders and the deacons and the preachers. And leave it at that. No, otherwise, every member would be comfortable in saying, I'm not spiritual. I'm not spiritual, therefore I'm excused from my responsibility. You see... The admonition is you who are spiritual. Do we not all want to be considered to be spiritual, to be spiritually minded? Oh, sure we do. Sure we do. Therefore, the admonition is to every member of the body of Christ. You who are spiritual, every one of you, every one of you striving to live the Christian life, hopefully, you be involved in restoring such a one, but do it in a spirit of gentleness, not harshly, not with brashness. You know, in the parables that we can read about in restoring the lost, if you go back to Luke 15 and the lost sheep, think about what is said. Concerned enough to go, but that leads to the next point compassionate as we do with gentleness a spirit of gentleness that's Galatians 6 of course but in Luke 15 the compassionate nature with which we are to approach the lost is seen in a phrase we looked at earlier remember what happens when he finds the sheep when he has found it he what 
he kicks that sheep all the way back to the sheepfold. And every time he kicks that sheep, he says, that's what you get for wandering in the first place. Get back. No. He lays it on his shoulders. Now there's tenderness exhibited. You can see the picture. He finds the sheep who has wandered, who has gone astray, and he lays it on his shoulders. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Rejoicing. There's the compassion that must be characteristic of every one of us involved in the process of restoring the wayward. Converted, convinced, concerned enough to go, compassionate as we go, but also capable. Capable. In other words, recognizing that we are capable. It doesn't have to be the elders alone or the preachers alone who are involved in this. We must consider ourselves capable, worthy, if we're among the spiritual. Do we have to know everything about what the scriptures teach, or every question that might be asked by that wayward member of whom we approach, every argument that might be made or every excuse that might be given? No, but we cannot take the attitude, well, let someone else do it. I'm just not worthy. I'm not worthy to do it. You're worthy if you're a saved child of God. None of us is sinless. But we are blameless, hopefully, if we're living as we should. And therefore, we don't have to be sinless in order to go to the wayward child of God and simply let that person know how much we love and care for that individual and how we've been praying and continue to pray and how we want to do everything we can to bring that lost sheep back to the fold. And what are the consequences if we fail in the responsibility about which we are speaking this morning? What will be the consequences? You remember in the book of Ezekiel what was said to Ezekiel by the Lord concerning his responsibility to Israel and the warning that he was to give to the house of Israel. It's Ezekiel chapter 3. And in Ezekiel chapter 3, beginning at verse 17, there are some sobering words, and yes, this is Old Testament, but the principle certainly permeates the New Testament as well. And what does the Lord say to Ezekiel? He says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, 
nor from his wicked way. He shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. In other words, we must do all that we can to warn the wicked. We must do all that we can to restore the wayward. And if we fail, then that blood will be upon our hands if we fail to make the effort. Now, if we make the effort and there is no favorable response, then the blood of that individual is upon his own head and we've been relieved of that responsibility because we've done what God wanted us to do. But we must do what God wants us to do. Oh yes, the elders are certainly charged with a special responsibility in leading the way, but not in completing the process alone without the cooperation and participation of the congregation. Acts 20, 28, take heed to the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made your overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. There's a sobering warning there to the elders. First Peter 5, beginning at verse 1, there the elders are charged as the under-shepherds of the chief shepherd himself, not to lord it over the flock, but to carry out their responsibility. And part of that responsibility can ultimately lead to the form of discipline that we have talked about at times in the past, which is our withdrawal of fellowship from the impenitent soul who, despite every effort that members have made, time and again, will not come home. From that individual, we must withdraw fellowship. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and the man who was living with his stepmother is the indication. And the church was told not to be puffed up and glorying about this as they were initially. They seemed to be so tolerant that they could take in anybody and love everybody and just welcome anyone, even an individual living with his father's wife. And Paul said, your glorying is not good. What you need to do if you love this man is show your love by exercising discipline, ultimately withdrawing your fellowship from him in the hope that he will come to his senses. And thankfully, that's what the church at Corinth did. And incidentally, was the church at Corinth a perfect church? Could they have said, well, we're not worthy uh, to carry this out? They had problems, didn't they? And the first Corinthian letter indicates problem after problem that Paul addressed, but at the same time in that same letter in which he addressed problems they had uh, among themselves, he said, nonetheless, you have a responsibility to act as a congregation to withdraw your fellowship from this man in the hopes of bringing him home, saving his soul, that his soul might be saved. Deliver such a one to Satan, that is, withdraw your fellowship that his soul might be saved. And when we read the second Corinthian letter, we can rejoice over the good news that was a part of that second Corinthian letter. What was that good news? That they had done what Paul admonished them to do and that this man had repented. They had brought him to his senses and he had repented. He had repented. And in 2 Corinthians, that is made abundantly clear. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he details, 
he details what they had done. And listen to verse 8. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. I want you to notice that word reaffirm. Paul doesn't say, I urge you now, now that you've withdrawn from him, now that he has been punished by the majority, it's sufficient for him, verse 6. Now forgive him, comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Don't go beyond what you've done. You've done it scripturally, you've done it right. The end result has been favorable. Now what? Reaffirm your love. He didn't say, affirm your love for him. You didn't love him when you withdrew from him, but tell him now that you love him. No, he said, reaffirm your love. You loved him when you disciplined him, and because you loved him, you disciplined him. Now simply reaffirm that love to him. Discipline in whatever form it takes teaching, admonition, and ultimately withdrawal of fellowship is not an unloving process. It is just the opposite. It is just the opposite, as we have often said. Paul makes that abundantly clear. But as I've also said before, here's the passage that sobers my thinking and hopefully yours. Verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 2. For to this end, this purpose, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. He's talking about withdrawal of fellowship. There's no question about it. And he said, I wrote to, to, to you in the first letter to tell you to do what God would have you do in a loving compassionate manner. Withdraw your fellowship. I wrote to you to put you to the test to see if you would do that. And then he said, to see whether you would be obedient in all things. I've mentioned it before in various contexts. As God is my witness, I am determined not to go to the judgment. Having served as an elder and have to say at the judgment, yes, I was willingly disobedient in at least one thing because I refused to be a part of church discipline ultimately leading to withdrawal of fellowship. I have no intention of going to the judgment having to say to the Lord, I have been willingly disobedient in this one thing. Because 2 Corinthians 2.9 is abundantly clear to me. But you see, the key is, that's not just something I should determine that I don't want to do. It should be something that every single member of the body of Christ determines he or she does not want to do and will not do. That you will not go to the judgment and have to say to the Lord, yes, I heard the lesson, lessons. Yes, I read the passage. Yes, I heard 2 Corinthians 2, 9 more than once. And yes, I am here, willing now before the Lord to be disobedient 
in this one thing. I shudder to think what I would hear from the Lord if indeed that's my attitude. Identifying the lost. Are we among them? We are if we're complacent rather than converted. We are if we're complacent rather than convinced that men are lost. We are if we are not concerned enough to go and to go with the deepest possible compassion and to bring them home tenderly or to make every effort to do so. And we all should consider ourselves capable of at least making some effort to be a part of that process. One thing is for sure, you can't be a part of restoring the wayward if you're still among them. If you're among those who've never obeyed the gospel, then we plead with you this morning to obey the gospel by a belief that leads you to repent of your sins, confess Jesus, and be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. And if you know this morning that you have done those things, but you are among the wayward and that your life has not reflected a life of glorification of God by your faithfulness in every sense to the fullest extent possible, then you need to come home. And once you've come home, then you can go again and encourage others who are still out there wandering to come back as well. And oh, there is no rejoicing that equals the rejoicing of bringing that lost soul home and seeing that soul come back to God. Heaven itself rejoices. And those who are determined to go to heaven rejoice as well. This morning, if you need to respond, will you come now as we stand and sing to encourage you?